0: Hello and welcome to the She's Heard podcast. My name is Emily Jennings and you found the place where extraordinary everyday people from different professions and walks of life share about how they found their voice and are using it to speak up and create meaningful change. We are in for quite a treat today as I'm speaking with an extraordinary human, often referred to as Miss Wakanda herself, Dr. Phyllis West. Dr. West is a fierce, compassionate lover of humanity, a powerhouse, a trailblazer, and a beautiful force of nature. Dr. West is a professor of social work and public health at Governor State University in Chicago, Illinois. She was also a Peace Corps volunteer in the Sierra Leone-Liberia region of West Africa during the war. In this episode, she gives us a glimpse of what it was like growing up on the west side of Chicago, where many African Americans moved during the second great migration. It was also the neighborhood where Dr. Martin Luther King lived before he was killed. She shares how she became the first in her family to graduate college and how it only takes one person to believe in you to change the trajectory of your life. She recounts how she found a way out of poverty and is educating and training community leaders to do the same. Recently, she made a trip to Ghana and reveals to us her life-changing and healing experience there. Both of Dr. West's parents grew up sharecropping and picking cotton. And in case you don't know, a sharecropper is a tenant farmer who works land that's rented from its owner and often pays the owner with a portion of the crops. It was very common for enslaved people to share crop for landowners post-slavery. Her father fled Mississippi to Chicago in fear of getting lynched, as it was a common practice at that time. He met her mother in Chicago, where they started a family at the age of 18. Her mother supported the family as a hotel service worker. The youngest of five kids, she's been called a miracle baby as her mother became pregnant five years after her tubes were tied and was not given much of a chance to survive given the harsh conditions of poverty and alcoholism. Dr. Phyllis West comes from four generations of vice lords, which are one of the oldest gangs. So without further ado, here's our conversation, starting off with Dr. West explaining what the vice lords are and what it was like growing up in the era of Dr. King.
1: My family lived on on the west side of Chicago. My father was a vice lord, and I have four generations of vice lords in my family. What's a vice lord? Exactly. For those that don't know.
2: Okay. I'm laughing. I know, right? I'm just. A matter
1: of <laughs> fact, my dad. Well, it was one of the oldest historic. It still exists now, but it was one of the oldest gangs in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I I mentioned that because we have four generations in my family of gang members. And it's really important to contextualize this, my location in terms of the right. conditions in which my family continue to deal with as of today as well. My father had a sense of membership. Gangs started in uh, Chicago uh, on the west side and south side of the town around the 50s. That is when these neighborhoods changed from being Jewish, predominantly Jewish, to then all of a sudden there was a white flight and then African Americans came in. And on the west side of Chicago, that was around the 1950s. And this gang formed amongst young black men who didn't have many jobs or opportunities. They formed the gang and they fought each other. And next thing you know, small gangs became a huge, large gang. And the reason why that's important is because Dr. Martin Luther King came to observe poverty in Chicago and lived across the street from my family. Oh, wow. I wasn't born at the time. Mm -hmm. I think it was 63 or 64. I was born in 65. I wasn't there. And, but my siblings were, because I'm the youngest of five, and I came five years later. King thought that Chicago was the best example and the severest place in which poverty was like a permanent underclass, and that is exactly what Chicago Tribune called mm-hmm. the Chicago West Side in the 1970s. My family... I'm sorry. They, he called it what? Uh, King didn't call it. The Chicago Tribune, the newspaper, oh. said that Chicago was like the permanent. Chicago West Side was like a permanent underclass. It was like a black hole. If you were born in poverty in Chicago on the West Side of Chicago, it's more than likely you would never get out of that neighborhood. Okay. That's what they said, which is not true. I Obvi- mean, yes obviously and and the yeah,
2: obviously yeah and right. it's also it speaks to the tone and the attitude of the Tribune and then the people that might agree with the Tribune it speaks to like the tone in the air of of that place it sounds like
1: it speaks right in in the era mm-hmm. of Chicago uh, mm-hmm. segregation and severe poverty a lot right a lot like what we're seeing today in different Communities. A lot of this stuff is not new. However, the challenge it presented is that because of the struggle and my father struggling with uh, substance abuse and being involved in gangs, it was a tremendous burden on my mother to figure out how do I raise my children. The alcoholism and the activity with my dad actually made it difficult for her to figure out how do we do this as a family he did raise us in a sense he was present but he wasn't fully present right he mm-hmm. right. i remember him i remember him being there but he had a relationship with alcohol who is his probably first wife mhm and his first family the substance abuse and it was an illness and he couldn't shake it my mother was told that she couldn't have any more children after her fourth child and I came five years later that's a miracle. Right. <laughs> That's right. incredible so her tubes were tied her tubes were tied
2: <laughs> five for five years and Phyllis's little soul is like I am coming World, yeah. I'm coming.
1: Take note. Yeah, yeah the little soldiers <laughs> and the egg were destined to meet. And wow, I know, right? My mother tell when yeah. my mother shares the story with me, I said, "Well, what happened?" She's like, "Well, I don't know. I just i I didn't." She's like, "But I can tell you, I could not handle it. The doctor told me throughout my pregnancy, you weren't supposed to get pregnant. You're not strong enough, either you or your baby." Uh, one of you are going to die. Uh, yes. You know, that's Go an ahead.
2: awful thing. To, that's an awful thing to say to a pregnant woman.
1: Yeah, but they said you, you probably won't make yeah. it, and they, yeah. you know, so she was like, "I'm going to pray my way through." Part of it was also physically; she wasn't supposed to do this, and then socially, she had a very stressful environment. No, and my father was abusive when he was drunk, so he pushed it down the stairs. <laughs> so he didn't help either. Hmm. Yeah, and, uh, but I, I came, and I, I came as a preemie. Uh, okay. I, was, I had to stay in the hospital, and around the time I got out of the hospital, my mother had a nervous breakdown, so I was out of the hospital, and she went back into the hospital.
2: So who took care of you then?
1: They had nurses coming in, and the neighbor and my father was there. There was a nurse there to help my father. For a few months, you know I mean for a period of time, I don't know if it was a few months. I know I was in the hospital for a few months, but I think her stay wasn't that long and she had to uh, she came out and she began working and she always figured it out. So she, my mother had extreme resilience. Uh, was extreme resilience yeah
2: it's, yeah that's amazing. Okay, so that's a uh, highly stressful. Yeah, and it sounds like toxic environment. Um, I don't know if "toxic" is the right word, um, but extremely stressful environment. And how how did you become not only the first to go to college and graduate, but then the, you're you're now teaching
1: others? You're, how how does that happen? How did you do that? I. Uh, I can tell you because I was the, – the my sibling next to me was five years older. My mother would tell them, take her outside, stay with her. But they would leave me on the staircase upstairs on the third floor and say, we'll be right back and never come back. And they would play. And they would go out and do whatever they were doing with their friends and they left me there. And I, I literally visualize in my head, right – when I see the cover of a book, I see my today's self standing over the little girl that was left at the mm. sta- at top of the staircase. Mm-hmm. And how old are you then? I was four, four or five. Wow. wow. And and I say that to say that I always felt alone, yet I had siblings. I had parents. There were at least six people in the house at all times, yet I didn't feel like I really fit. They always took care of the baby, right? They always took care of the baby. I was the baby. And because I was very sickly, my mother made sure nobody bothered me. You know, she would protect me, leave her alone. She would always protect me when she was around. But when she wasn't around, there there wasn't much protection. And if my father was left in charge and he was drinking, I was truly at risk. And you're right. It was uh, part of it was a toxic environment. And another part of it was very resilient and determined because it taught me the one thing you, you learn in an impoverished community is how to survive. Mm-hmm. And I knew and I learned early how to survive. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I was sexually abused at four. And I didn't realize that until I was in my 20s when I was in the Peace Corps and I had flashbacks uh, of something happening to me. And it came through a dream. And I realized, and I, of course I always had a big mouth, and I was like, ah, he touched me. And it was he, he was my father's friend. And it came through a dream, and I told my family about it in my 20s, That because I did not know uh, it had happened. And, and I say this because children have a way of suppressing those things that are harmful in order to be able to cope.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: With their reality. I coped with my reality by having a really powerful community. My neighbors took us to, took me to school and supported me. I took Mm -hmm. their youngest daughter to school. They fed me. I always had two meals. I was from a block that all the children knew each other, all the neighbors knew each other. And then I would go to school, and that's when I met Miss Kent. Hmm. Tell us my, about Miss Kent. Miss Kent, Miss Kent was uh, is was and is a badass. She okay. was in her twenties. She was my fifth grade teacher in her twenties. We were. Uh, she was our fifth and sixth grade teacher. She was from the neighborhood. And she would be very creative in teaching us math, science, history. We, the first time I left the west side of Chicago, I went with Ms. Kent. I learned about Irish communities, Italian communities, Hispanic communities, just all the different cultures of Chicago through Ms. Kent's eyes. Ms. Kent wanted to join Peace Corps. And that's how I heard of Peace Corps for the first time, but never knew anyone who had done it. And so Ms. Kent, what's significant about Ms. Kent in my life is that up until that moment, I never thought I could learn. I never had a book in the household where I lived. I had magazines, but never a book. It was never required of me to do my homework, to do, you know, to do well. There was never a standard because I was the youngest of five. My sisters had dropped out. They kept getting in trouble. Uh, and my brothers were nine, ten years older, and they had graduated from high school, but wasn't around. Miss Kent told me I could learn mm. She told me I could do it, and I believed her- mm-hmm. because up until that moment, no one told me I could. that is so powerful.
2: Yeah. Right, so that's where the seeds are planted. It just takes one person to believe in you.
1: <laughs> exactly, right?
2: Yeah. <laughs> and
1: I'm still person. in touch with Miss Kent today. Wow. Yeah, she's on Facebook with me and everything.
2: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thank we you, Miss Kent.
1: Yeah, we all need a Miss Kent. We all need a Miss Kent. We all need a Miss Kent, right? and many
2: of us have them. And thank you, Miss Kent. Wow. Right. Okay. So then, that's kind of what planted the seeds to learn and to be curious about all these other communities and to exactly understand and unravel poverty and why gangs are ne- i don't want to say necessary—but why they're kind of necessary in those kinds of environments. And well, you um, know,
1: you're right. So gangs today are very different, right? Uh, and i'm not and i'm not glorifying gangs you know i i'm very intentional not to glorify gangs uh and because i under but i do understand the dynamics because it's <laughs> because of having family members who are deeply who have deeply struggled with uh poverty and I I can't answer the question that most people think and I think. I'm like, why me? Why didn't I succumb to my environment? Uh Right? Highly infested with drugs. Drugs were all around me. Uh, Gang members. Gang members protected me. There was a time I had the biggest crush. I can tell you this. I had the biggest crush on Gregory Dockery. Greg, even today, (laughs) you know, Greg was the guy I wanted to be with. (laughs) <laughs> Honestly, at 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. Greg lived across the street, and one day I went over to his house and said, hey, Greg, what you doing? He was like, nothing. I looked down. There was this garbage bag full of weed. And I said, oh, teach me how to roll a joint. And he said, what? I was like, teach me how to roll a joint. Mind you, I'm around 15, 16 years old. I So he taught me how to roll the joint. And he looked at me, and I was holding it, and he took it out of my hand, and he said, you're a good girl. Get out of here. Wow. We were the same age.
2: That is like a, that is a life-changing moment.
1: Yeah. He said, get out of here. You're a good girl. I still talk to Greg today. Mm Mm-hmm. And he, my Greg went on. Now he was having sex with somebody else, and he, they were making babies. <laughs> and I thank him every day. <laughs> like, oh, thank you, Greg.
2: Wow, those are like the sliding yeah. door moments, sliding door yeah. moments. You know what Yeah, so
1: many. Yeah, yeah, I have so many of those, and I'm and I'm grateful that I was spared. You know, mm-hmm. grateful that I was spared. But I've always worked I've worked since I was 14 years old and I worked at a drugstore that still exists this over 50 years old in that neighborhood it was the only store that last during the uh, during the riots in 1968 because King was murdered the whole our community uh, the men in our community were so frustrated and angry because they had had a relationship with dr. King and it wasn't an easy relationship because it was a relationship that they overheard, uh, some leaders, King's leaders, saying, Oh, they don't need, we don't need these thugs. And they were quiet. They went back to the community and said, fine, he doesn't need us. We don't need him. We're not dealing with this. Mm-hmm. And King came around and he said, what's going on? And the, the gang members said, the vice force said, we heard you don't need us. So since you don't need us to do the civil rights thing you're doing, leave us alone and stay out of our community. And King said, wait a minute. No, I do need you. And that's not true. And I need you because you are representative of what we're dealing with and who we're fighting for. It's the plight of the black man we're fighting for, you know, mm-hmm. and for our families and They bonded. They said, okay, we're going to give you a chance. And these black men who trust no one, these vice lords said, okay. And from that point on, they protected. So when King died in 68, Mm -hmm. it's like all the hope had left. They started burning down things. I I witnessed at three years old the store burning down. And saying, mommy, why are they burning our store? It was the only grocery store in the community when you're talking about food Uh, deserts. Yeah. Yeah. But we are, you know, we didn't have anything. We didn't own anything. We barely could have food. I barely, you know, had food on the table daily. Sometimes we just had rice or bread when my mother didn't have money. I like,
2: that's so hard for me to imagine. And I imagine that it's very hard for many people to imagine that kind of poverty like how do you survive that that like i said you've mentioned your community and
1: you are innovative and you can do amazing things with some bread and butter (laughs) i can tell you and some beans and greens we probably ate healthier with limited resources than many of us do now with resources how
2: so because you are growing stuff
1: no, no, we couldn't grow anything. No, no. It, back then, there was uh, people weren't gardening or anything like that, uh, and you barely had food. So how so is that your money stretched? You have beans, you have greens. These are staples. You have rice, and you have a little chicken. And maybe every once in a while you have some fish, you have you know whatever meat it is, they had to eat, they had pork, they had, we, we had all of that. but we didn't get a lot of that. We only had a little because we had to spread and we had to share. but you did get a lot of beans, okay. and you, had, you could eat a lot of greens, which meant and, you, and to get candy and junk food and all of that was a luxury. And you couldn't go to a fast food restaurant. That's a rarity that you were going to go to a fast food restaurant because the money wasn't there. So you got food in bulk. How does,
2: how does that inform your work now?
1: It, it informs my work in working with future professionals who are going to help struggling families. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is, especially with like the state of Illinois, our budget sucks. Uh, it, they have fought, they have taken money away to uh, work with children in foster care, to work with the men, uh, people who are challenged with mental illness, name it. Any government uh, program has been cut, which means it reduces the resources we have. Uh, people can't either, uh, you can't hire social workers. Or public health workers; those jobs, a lot of those jobs have been cut. So we have fewer of those resources to help poor families. And what I say to my students is, I understand, but no excuse. We mm-hmm. find a way. We are mm-hmm. creative and we are resourceful. And that just doesn't. That is fit. a
2: great mantra. We find yeah. a way.
1: We find we a are- way
2: we are creative and we are resourceful
1: exactly and we and we do what my mother has said because of watching her do it we make a way out of no way whoa we will she rain. did
2: that yeah yeah
1: and being in the peace corps in the peace corps i lived in sierra leone in liberia i was evacuated because of the wars there in Sierra Leone, I lived in the eastern province. You know where Blood Diamonds? I don't, I'm sorry. Uh, you, have you heard yeah. of the movie Blood Diamonds?
2: Oh, yes. Yes, I okay. saw that. Yeah.
1: Well, if you saw Blood Diamonds, that is the area I lived in, in the village with no running water, no electricity.
2: Dang, how long did you live like that?
1: Almost two years in an outhouse okay. and made major transportation with my bike. And I lived with the people in that community who at times didn't have shoes and they would go to the farm every day. And if they can live without running water, without electricity, in a thatcher mm-hmm. of HUD and farm and survive, then what excuse do we have? Mm-hmm. We find a way. Mm-hmm. Okay,
2: let's take that forward. <laughs>
1: yeah, we, we do, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah.
2: That, like How do we find a way, this is what I've been thinking a lot about, because I keep getting reminded of how important belonging is, and belonging not like a false sense of belonging that's just based off of, oh, we look alike, and so... We're family or we all agree to the same beliefs and so we're a religious community or we need community. We are wired. Humans are wired for community. Yes. And we also need to be able to be our authentic selves. It's like when we start having to, you know, pretend that we're something we're not for the sake of fitting in. Right. I mean, I see this across all income levels, across all colors, mm-hmm. across everything. And so that's what I want. How do we find a way? How do we How find do we a we way? Right. To, to, to look across the differences and to focus more on what we share, what we have in common, and um, live more in that vibe, in that space, more in that tone of thinking and feeling and seeing. I know that you do that because I, I felt it the moment I met you.
1: Well, I can tell you and I can challenge, mm-hmm. I can challenge you a bit, right? Okay, yeah, please do. Uh, Because I think that's, that's what makes for finding the way. Mm. Finding a way and and finding the way which is different for each of us requires us not to look across the differences. Because if we look across our differences and if we say that and I really challenge my white sisters on this mm-hmm. one. Right? Because if I'm calling somebody, my sister, and We're Western, we're in America, and they don't look like me, and we're close, that means we are able to have a dialogue that is so deep and so rich that it's because of that dialogue and constant dialogue, we then form a tribe. And we are together, which means we are not alone, because we're not meant, I agree with you, we're not meant to be alone. And yet, think about it, at four or five years old, I felt that isolation and aloneness. And I know what it feels like not to belong and how horrible it feels to be isolated and alone. I felt that all my life. Mm. And I learned that I don't like this feeling and... I'm going to be in school, I'm going to work with people and in, in you know, in grammar school and, and figure out how do I become friends and my mother I would come home very upset and my mother I would tell her, you know, what happened in school and she'll say, Well that's okay, you still have to do the right thing because even if it's hard, do the right thing. Now one day my dad came to see how I was doing in school. He was drunk. He had a hole in his pants, and the students could smell the alcohol on my dad. And they all talked about my dad and said, oh, my gosh, her dad stinks and he's drunk. Can you imagine fourth grade? Uh I ran home, and I told my mother I hate him. I hate him, Mom. I hate him. And she said, stop it. She said, I hear what you're saying. But remember, he's still your father. My mother taught me a lesson. She taught me several lessons in that instant. She taught me, yeah, your father's pretty fucked up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But he's your father. And she taught me, how do you love people even when they fall short? And how do you hold your head up high even when you feel shamed and embarrassed? And shame is definitely another isolating feeling. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so I learned, right, in fourth grade how to hold my head up. Even when it felt uncomfortable, and I and, and so I'm bringing into how do how do I fit in? I've had those instances and bullying instances where I didn't fit in, and I realized that you know what I'm beating to a different drum, and I found people who I had things in common, and we bonded. Yet, I always had to find this strength and this courage to. Do the right thing, even when it didn't feel good. And the right thing, uh, the sense of belonging and how do we, you know, I, I, I always found one or two people or somebody I could talk to or bond with. And I noticed I kept gravitating towards these people who thought outside the box.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yet, a lot of people, when you get in a room, don't have the courage to say much. If about injustice and about things that are wrong. We sometimes are just quiet and we get along. And I think that's the wrong thing to do. So it's isolating and it can be lonely. But for me personally, I had to make a choice of all the things that I have been afforded to see, right, and the opportunities I've had, the places I've lived. More than anybody else, when I ask God, when I ask the universe, the ancestors, why? Why me? Why did you let me survive this? Why didn't I get strung out on drugs? And then I realized that I'm not meant to sit here and just be like everybody else. And if we want conformity, then we really don't want change and development and growth. You can't have it both ways. Mm -hmm. I'm not supposed to look like you. My hair is not supposed to look like yours. And I have to understand my ancestry. So that's the part that I would challenge you on is that I can't look across and ignore. Because to look across and ignore means you don't see me and you don't see my humanity. And you mm-hmm. don't see, you know, and I, you can't ignore, you know, when you put the two of us together and we have beautiful pictures together. That's what makes the richness. Absolutely. The, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. And when I see your humanity, when I see you, and I listen to you, I think that's what brings us together. But in, in America, I don't ever want anybody to tell me just ignore my history. I can't ignore 412 <laughs> generations of slavery. No, we, and we shouldn't do that, no. No. I
2: don't think we should ignore, how do I say this? Everything, like what you just said, no, embracing the difference, um, the difference in terms of, like, how we look and where we're from, that should be, that absolutely should be acknowledged. I think what, um, when I say, what I'm reminded of when, of groups that are based off of, I'm remi- of, of what people look like. I remember, I'm thinking of, like, I grew up at a predominantly white school mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the groups that were there were what appeared to me were based off of like, they all wore the same brand. They all had a similar hairstyle. They mm-hmm. literally all just like looked mm-hmm. like each other. And I was just like, it just, I couldn't, I didn't have language for it at
0: right. the time.
2: I, I just knew like there's something really off here. I felt like I had to be pretend like I was something that I was not in order to look like I fed in. And I totally agree that it. it's just to stop pretending, I think, to stop yeah. to stop trying to be something we're not. I yeah. wonder if white chicks can get away with pretending better than someone who's African-American because you can't fake being white.
1: Right. And or, we still, though, we still struggle with that. I saw I it in Ghana. I see it at... <sighs> I, we, I, I think you're, you're on to something because it takes a lot of courage to be authentic and to embrace and accept and be who you are and to, to, to stand in your truth. It takes a lot of courage because that doesn't always, you won't always fit in if you do that.
2: Yeah, you don't. You don't at all. And even amongst the people you love the most. And that's I what I think is, would so, can be so heartbreaking and so isolating and lonely.
1: It's very lonely because when you get education, I tell my students, many of them are first generation, when you get, educa- when you get a college education and if you're from a family who doesn't have a college education, there's a lot of tension there. Because now you have, you've been a part. Now you're part of a world, and you've been a part of a world, and have had experiences that your family members haven't had. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean they don't love you. It just means that they don't understand these experiences, these life experiences that you've had. No one in my family has ever been to Africa, or has ever traveled abroad with the exception of my aunt Eloise who lived in Germany and she passed and her husband they lived in Germany but that's it I'm talking about the entire family cousins and other family members hmm my brother I think was in Germany but after other than that the military and can you imagine so right if you do something different than your family now there's society. It doesn't mean you don't love them. It doesn't mean that you won't get along. It just means certain parts of your life will not. You you probably have to go elsewhere for that mm-hmm. support and find another tribe of people who support you. Mm-hmm.
2: I think that's the kind of. I think you referred to it a little bit earlier about. Um, kind of like your biological and then your chosen family. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, um, and so that's where you can exercise some agency in terms of, oh, you marched to the same crazy beat that I marched to, so we should hang out. Yeah. Yeah. And it also doesn't mean severing ties with the people that don't march to that drum.
1: Can I give you an example? May I, may I give you? Oh,
2: please do. Yeah. So check
1: check this out. This is what's going on now. I think it's in the Supreme Court or going to the Supreme Court. But some court, I, I forgot where it was, but, you know, once you go to, go to court about a certain issue of concern, based on that court's verdict and how they uh, weigh in terms of the law, it will influence all future laws about that subject Mm -hmm. there's a something in the courts right now and it's about to go to Supreme Court or something that says it is legal to not hire somebody because they have locks
2: oh god yeah I think I heard about that
1: yeah so (sighs) right a number of so that's multi-layered locks uh for for your audience dreadlocks depending on what they call them i had locks for 12 years and before i cut my hair and there are others uh people who have uh locks they're white people asian people black people you know locks are not just towards african the african community yet majority of locks and the origins of locks are african and the, to think that somebody can decide to not hire you because you have locks what does that say in, in particular what does that say to women of african origin of any you know doesn't matter where they're from of women with dark skin with curly hair what does that say what it says is that in order for me to get the job and this has been a challenge in order for me to get the job that i want I need to have straight hair. My, I need to fit in to corporate. I need to look corporate. In order to look corporate, in other words, I need to look white or as close to white as possible. Okay. My hair needs to be straight, not curly, because nappy hair is not, or curly hair, nappy is a quote, I'm putting a quote around there, curly mm-hmm. hair, or anything that's not straight is not close to whiteness. And people go, ah, oh, they probably feel so uncomfortable about that. But what is it about us that, you know, African-American women that, or African women of African origin, that if I need to go and apply for a job, am I accepted with natural hair equally as I'm accepted with straight hair? Or how about just being accepted just the way I came out the womb? Yeah. And so I struggle with that because in Chicago, there's this big billboard before you get to the expressway on Stony Island going towards 95th Street. And every time I see this billboard, I'm like, am I the only one that's bothered
2: by this? Is it promoting this legislation? No.
1: Well, it's another subliminal. It's not even a subliminal. It's it's Uh. another outright message that tells black women you're not okay as you are. You need to conform. You need to change. So the billboard says... Mm. You're burning up, I hear you.
2: <laughs> I, know. I don't
1: understand it. Why? Why? Yeah,
2: okay.
1: Check out what the billboard says though. You probably it's not gonna help you. You're gonna get you're gonna really get to that. <laughs> the billboard says make sure you're beautiful by getting your Asian, Malaysian, or Indian hair. Wow. In other words, in order for black women to look pretty they need to have this hair that is not their hair. They need to go buy this hair from Asian, Brazilian, Malaysian women and then put it on their head, and then they'll be beautiful.
2: Ah. Uh, that's why Black Panther is so revolutionary.
1: <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> oh, that's my tribe. That's yes. why.
2: That's why we have Wakanda. <laughs> that's
1: right. That's right. That's right. That's why
2: it's so revolutionary. Yeah. That's and right. So, so, I mean, it's liberating for me, even though like that's not my tribe. But I'm so freaking happy. I'm seeing that you guys are kicking it and that you're received the accolades and the turnout that it has, not just in the States, but globally.
1: Right. Because that frees
2: everybody. That frees everybody. When you have the freedom to fully be you, then I have the freedom to fully be me. And that is why our liberation is directly linked to each other.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah absolutely our liberation and that's what it, it, it how can it not be right people correct yes. right you're looking at Wakanda and all the history you know the history when you were well, when we're talking about Black Panther and all the history that's in there and a lot of people say well I have to go back because I missed the history they they constantly miss parts you know like when a killmonger said kill me because I'd rather be in the ocean with my ancestors right right yeah. and that's speaks to yeah. right and a lot of people know yeah, a lot of maybe a lot of younger people and older people do they understand what he meant mm-hmm. do do they understand that he deeply referred to all the ancestors who had died during the transatlantic slave trade and were dropped in the middle of the ocean and didn't make it there were so mm-hmm. many people didn't make it and I'm, you know, that I'm close, even closer to that spiritually. I have had in my lifetime the opportunity to visit four slave dungeons. People call them castles, slave castles. And the castles were where Africans were captured and taken and prepared, prepped to be enslaved and sent overseas to either South America, the Americas, or Europe. Well, I call them dungeons. They don't That's, call them
2: castles. Go ahead. They sound, That sounds so intense and awful. <laughs> and when you say that, and I just want to mention this because I, mm-hmm. I, I suspect I'm not the only person. It's like, why would you ever want to see that? And, mm. you know, that seems like it'd be so easy to drop into depression like, that would be almost impossible to get out of is, mm-hmm. what, I, is what comes up for me when I hear that. Mm-hmm. And then I also know that you cannot heal anything. You can't look in the eye.
1: Mm.
2: It needs oxygen. It needs air. It needs to breathe. And I think that that's, I know I'm not alone with the fear, especially mm-hmm. coming from a culture of politeness and don't rock the boat. Like I hear that and I'm like, oh, I get this visceral reaction of like, oh my God, that is terrifying and heartbreaking. And I don't know if I could come back from that. And then on the other side, the response is like, no, you've got to look at, you've got to look at the history. You've got to look at the, the reality of what has happened and is still in the air and is still impacting
1: people to this day. Right, right. So so you know
2: that and you have a deeper sense of resilience <laughs> than most people.
1: Well, um, I, you know what, and I can tell you, you're right. And I think that mm-hmm. first and foremost that we don't have a choice. If we choose not to look at it, it's a luxury and it's a privilege, mm-hmm. right? <sighs> you know, if we choose not to, that that is a choice. I I think that it's, probably a choice that keeps us in the situation we are in because when people choose to ignore, it's almost permission to continue the same cycle. Yeah. Of I'm, abuse,
2: I'm nodding over here
1: <laughs> right of abuse yeah. and oppression of humanity. And that's the thing when and it's, you know, when we talk about it and people say, well, yeah, this is your culture because you're African-American. No, guess what? The transatlantic slave culture. trade is our yeah. culture. Is it the is history our history of America. Right. And it's all the tension that still exists that yeah. many of us are say, oh, no, I'm over that. No, you're not over it. Because this, you, you can see the systems and how they continue in different ways. Even today, if we look closely, it doesn't mean we need to get stuck, like you said. And some people probably say, oh, they're stuck or they're depressed or you can get depressed. I can tell you this, and I, I understand it's not easy. I, can, I, can, it, I told somebody today. There are two examples I can tell you. I told someone today when she asked me, a young lady at the gym asked me, so how was your trip? And I thought it was powerful, and I had a chance to visit the the slave dungeons. And also, I went to the last, in Ghana, I went to, in Cape Coast, what's called the Last Bath River. The Last Bath River was Mm. the river in which Africans who were captured were in uh, went into that river and bathe well we bathed in that river i was in that river and i screamed mm. so hard
2: mhm
1: i i didn't even know what was in me mhm <laughs> that was coming out but i felt i felt all of what was there mm-hmm. and I, you know, I, I left out, you know, I was messed up. We processed this stuff. We talked about the history of what happened. And then we followed the path from the last bath, where the captured Africans had to literally, our my ancestors, had to walk for miles to get to the slave dungeon. We went into the slave dungeon. At the top of the slave dungeon what they call a castle is where the governors and where the Europeans had their offices. At the bottom were the dungeons, and the dungeons were broken up into three. Either they were a place for where men were locked up in, and they had hundreds in this small space, and then there were a place for women, and then there were, well, four, and then there were two other uh, spaces where people could stay. And those two other spaces were condemnation rooms so we did a ceremony in these places you know praying in the space what happened in this space paying homage to the ancestors who wow. were uh, killed or sent over enslaved and so when we did it we lit our candle we did a prayer and moment of silence and I didn't I had to light my candle and I, I told our guide I have to leave. He said, Where are you where are you going? I said, I have to go in the other room. He said, Okay, go ahead. I went into the other room. I was the only other person who went into this other room. Well, I went into the room that was for women who were sentenced to condemnation. Yeah, what does that mean? They were sentenced to death for rebellion They did something they tried to escape they spoke up they probably tried to protect whatever it was they did something that these capturers did not like to the point that they want to sentence them to death by suffocation oh my god and I went into that room and I sat in that room and I thanked them for sacrificing because I know that I probably would have been in that room Mm-hmm. because I felt too comfortable in this room. Mm-hmm. But I knew that room was where I belonged. And I say all this to say, when I got out, I felt like I had something that reinvigorated me. And several days later, we went to orphanages, we worked with villages, and then several days later, I went and I presented at the University of Ghana. And in that conversation with the students there, I said something about, it's powerful when you know where home is. And one of the students said, so where is home? Now, this is a Ghanaian student. And he said, where is home? And I looked at him, and I looked at that group of 80-something students and said, home for me is in Africa, Africa. Home for me is in America, but most of our home for me is in my heart. Wow. And I know that my ancestors who came from this land, forced from this land, enslaved for 400 years, 12 generations, have created a home for me in a sacred place that I can never question. I know who I am, and I know what I'm made of. So while for some people this is depressing, for me, the fact that I am sitting here in Ghana at the University of Ghana speaking to you as Dr. West after 400 years of slavery plus Jim Crow, 12 generations, I know who I am. And I don't need validation from you because I know my power. And that's what it does, because so often we think of the pain. But can Uh you imagine when you talk about miracles? Miracles? The fact that an African American can stand here today? We don't even understand the blessing and the power and the sacrifice if we think we can't. There's nothing we can't do. Yeah. And that's what we have to teach our children. Because they don't know this. This is why this history is important. Yeah. Yep. 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 Okay, I get passionate when I talk about that. When I think Oh about
2: no, I am so moved. I'm like bawling my eyes out right now. <laughs> I'm
1: sorry. I thought you were crying. <laughs> no,
2: no, no, no. <laughs> um, I think what a key takeaway from from what you just said was like when you were sitting in the room that wasn't so uncomfortable and you're like, Mm -hmm. oh, this is too comfortable. I need to go into the condemnation room. Mm -hmm. The fact that you know to do that is awesome in the true sense of like it is powerful to know that the gold is in the discomfort, that the freedom and the liberation is leaning into the discomfort because it's the conditioning, it's the pull, it's the wanting to stay comfortable that keeps us confined, that keeps us blind, that keeps us stuck. Right. But we just have, have to listen, right? Yeah, yeah, we have to listen and then not be afraid of the discomfort. And listen and to not be afraid of the discomfort. And so, like, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for doing that, and thank you for sharing that story. Well, thank you yeah that is that but to me that is a victory for all
1: <laughs> it is a victory for all of us and we oh, all yeah. need we need here's the deal right and i know we have spent much time in me talking about history my experience and i'm clear that i contextualize any conversation i talk to about i contextualize it as a black woman as an african woman born in america at the same time, I do that because, as I said to the people at the University of Ghana, the more we learn about others and others' culture, the more we learn to love and embrace our own.
0: And if Absolutely. we can learn,
1: right? So if I'm comfortable yeah. with loving me, I can love Emily even more Correct. and better. I can model that because I'm not afraid to love me yeah. as I am. That's the yeah. freedom.
2: Yeah. Yes. Uh- Right? Preach, mama, preach. Yes. Right? right. Yeah. right. right. Of I love. When I think about the legislation for, you know, making locks illegal, which is just fucking asinine to me. The level of fear that's behind that is staggering. Like are you yeah. how is somebody's hairstyle in any way, shape or form threatening right.
1: you? What?
2: Right. What? what? I don't fucking, like, you need help, dude.
1: Right. It doesn't ah. matter, right? So it doesn't matter. Uh, I, I'm just sitting here thinking. I had locks throughout the time I was getting my PhD at the University of Chicago and beyond. I never had a problem with getting hired and working with people. Uh, it's. I, I just didn't even... Think about it, and and cutting my hair. I think I'm excited about people being their authentic selves. It's not, it's mm-hmm. liberating. And I think that's the problem when it becomes a threat. If you're saying, oh, they're too much like them, you know, that's too much different. That you you look so different, which means that you are a threat. Mm-hmm. And we do have a community of people in this world in the United States and, and beyond who thinks that you have to look like me, you have to be like me, you have to practice religion like me. If you don't abide by these rules, you don't have morals, and you're going to be a threat. But I disagree. It takes independent thinkers. I want people to be critical about, think critically about what we do. I question if we if we don't, how are we really changing Society for growth is when we there are people we don't accept. I, I can tell you, one young lady told me uh, while I was in Ghana that her community feels that she can. The reason why she can't get pregnant is because she sinned, and God is punishing her. So you know, it makes me think: Do we really want to? that and think that in order to being a Christian means God is going to punish you, the God you believe in is an abuser, will abuse you and punish you viciously and make you not have a child? Mm -hmm. What are we telling people? Yeah. And who's speaking up against that?
2: Right. And the roots of that are are fear and control. And it's just like enough, enough, enough. And it's the stakes are high <laughs> to right. to disrupt the rhetoric of fear and control, but it's also the cost is, is even more. I think
1: so. Right. Well, I, I yeah. I I again. I there's there's a space and a place we have to nurture each other and take care of and mm-hmm. encourage each other to. Do this exploration and discovery I'm going to have a conversation in a few minutes someone who was following me on Facebook and heard my journey and she said oh my goodness I need to talk to you because I had a similar experience when I was in Ireland and mm. how my family members were persecuted and had to flee and leave Ireland and, and so we we see this journey of ancestry and struggle that we are now able to talk about but also use it as a tool to change our narrative and that's where I'm going with finding an authentic voice means changing our narrative how we tell this story? We can tell a doom. I can tell a doom gloom story about slavery and about my ancestors. And what does that mean that I can't trace all of them to a specific place? And that I can tell that story, or I can tell a story of resilience and empowerment and people who never gave up. Yep. You know.
2: Yep, and who are making a way out of no way. Make a, you remember
1: that—that's a southern thing. Make a way out of no way. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And, we, and that's what you've done. That's what we've all done. We've made a way. Yeah. yeah. We just have to give ourselves credit and be loving and tender with ourselves, mm-hmm. and know that it's all right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. All right, babe. I believe we are made to create. We are creative creatures and that our words can speak things into existence. And so that's why I love to ask the question, what is your wish for our country, for the planet or the world? Getting the idea into your head and into your heart is like the first step to then creating a new reality. So...
1: Do you my have a prayer
2: or a wish for the world yeah, or the planet or yeah?
1: I country? do, yeah. I do, I really, really do. And my wish stems from a quote by theologian John and Bt. I am because we are. We are because I am. I am because we are. We are because I am. My wish for the world is for us to truly see the humanity of another person. Right? When we look in the mirror that we can see ourselves and we can see and recognize and acknowledge someone else's soul and humanity. And that's when we can become one mm-hmm. by connecting with each other's soul and spend our energy connecting. Versus the opposite.
2: Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Dr. West. I love your life. <laughs> you are a miracle. <laughs> Is there any final thing you want to add?
1: No. I look forward to doing some work with you, some healing work. Okay. and uh, Yeah hopefully collectively make a contribution to healing, healing this world Yeah. and loving this world and sending love throughout.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Again, that was Dr. Phyllis West of governor state university in Chicago, Illinois. If you have a story to share or an experience that helped you find your voice, I'd love to hear your story. Please go to sheesher.com and click on the button that says share my story and sign up for our newsletter for updates on the latest releases and opportunities to connect. Tune in to the next episode. More inspiration, wisdom, and insight is on the way. Until next time, standing in our collective liberation, be well.